Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Eric Eupin interviews Jamie Montgomery. Eric is the co-founder of Point Olima Capital, a private investments office serving multi-generational families. He previously served as the CIO of McKenna Capital Management, CIO at Stanford Management Company, and the interim CIO at Washington University in St. Louis, where he remains as executive board chair. 
Jamie is the co-founder and managing partner of March Capital, a billion-dollar Santa Monica-based venture and growth equity firm that invests in AI, cyber, fintech, data infrastructure, and gaming. Before they get going, Eric and I discuss his history with Jamie and his frameworks for thinking about investing in March and its positioning in a venture portfolio. Eric, great to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Ted. So I'd love to hear how you first met Jamie and March. I was introduced to Jamie by John Conlon, who was the CEO of Robertson Stevens at the time, one of the four horsemen, one of the great investment banks of San Francisco, founded by Sandy Robertson and many others. Jamie was building a next generation boutique investment bank called Montgomery and Company, no relation to Tom Weisel's Montgomery Securities. And he was looking to build a firm to really help young companies get financing, think about their growth, and build something that really was a follow-on to those great firms. So how did that play out from Montgomery the bank to what became March Capital? Jamie had built Montgomery and managed the firm quite well through even the tech or the global financial crisis, and then ultimately sold the firm. And as he was thinking about his next chapter, he really was looking to invest in a lot of the businesses. When you have a lot of experience taking companies public, doing M&A, where you're really seeing hundreds and hundreds of companies and dozens becoming joggernauts, really significant players, and the amount of return and wealth creation that occurs there, that was the insight for him to take those skills and that pattern recognition and experience and transfer from being in the transaction world to the investing world. How do you think about evaluating that as an investment strategy? There are three ways looking at some of the great, great venture capital investors. One area where you've seen great success is entrepreneurs that have built companies and understand what is involved across the multiple fronts you have to fight, get hire great people, keep them and develop a strategy, marketing, obviously building a product and essentially running at 100 miles an hour. So there's the entrepreneur is the venture capitalist category too, you could argue, to grown up in a great firm, whether it's Sequoia, one of the world's greatest, or the Greylock Excel, the, this, the, the training and the exposure to that level of intellect, that level of ferocity, that level of thinking about and investing and the flow you get is just an extraordinary experience if you're able to do well on those platforms. And it's extremely demanding and hard because the expectations are high. And then the third is having the pattern recognition from an investment side. And that's where I think Jamie brings a lot of almost surprising amount of insight. And when you've really seen hundreds and hundreds of companies and you've seen which have worked well and which haven't, and even having been a Wall Street analyst for 15 years myself, you know, one of those analysts that's always wrong with the quarterly estimates and everything else, that pattern set, that experience set, all the questions really has been a strong base to then build an investment strategy around it. And then lastly, as we're seeing venture capitalists start to become more focused rather than covering the entire waterfront, And so focusing on cybersecurity and all of things around protecting the enterprise, AI and machine-led and algorithmic-led kind of applications, those areas of focus has also given them greater expertise and be able to build on that pattern recognition. So I'm curious, in the big seats where you sat, 
a lot of times you expect these venture portfolios to be filled with the sequoias and the axels because you do have access and there's long, long histories of relationships there. How do you think about fitting in a March capital into a venture portfolio? If you can own some of the great titans, that obviously is a great toehold. But even the great institutions that are now managing 20, 30, or 40 billion, when some of the world's greatest venture capital firms have five or $600 million early stage funds, mean you're still only getting 10, 20, 30, 40 million. So you, you're now having to think about things differently on two dimensions. Portfolios are bigger. And so how do you start to find a next generation or other satellite players to complement an existing portfolio? And secondly, how do you think about building a venture portfolio where you are seeing increasing specialization? So to answer your question, there is a starting point. I'd say three things in my own opinion. One is a mix of core and satellite. So if you can access some of the great, great firms, that's terrific. And then you complement other players around that. Secondly, you are looking for spin outs where it looks like a first time fund, but these are highly experienced investors. You know their track record, you know who they are, you've known them a long time, you know their wiring. So, where you have that edge. Third, you're looking for earlier stage funds because you often see much higher performance when life is simple, fund size is smaller, and you have the singular mission of just investing. Things get really complicated by fund eight and nine. Firms are big, you're on dozens of boards. And I think a big change from the old days when I was in the endowment world, you often were looking for the great names that brought great credibility to your decision because every other great endowment was there. Today, you're seeing the real great CIOs are looking for first-time funds, spin-outs, where you've really identified talent and you want to be there early so you can gain greater capacity and you're more actively involved early and you're capturing some of that early funds one through three kind of extremely high return. And the last piece is around co-investments and really looking for firms where you can partner and they are a source of deal flow with the idea that you're really rather have 40 to 50 venture names in your portfolio than 600. So in the world of where does March fit is that A, you have a first-time fund. Now uh, they're on fund four, but their first couple funds are really looking to be top decile, not just top quartile. And that is quite striking. And now that it looks like their third fund is entering into that top quartile realm as well, it's still early, but very encouraging and promising. And then secondly, the area of focus that they have, and they have done an extraordinary number of successful co-invests and their performance has been across the portfolio as opposed to one grand slam home run. So it fits in that early entrance, highly focused, strong partner to co-invest. And now moving from a first time fund into this adolescent stage in fund four. Yeah, great. Well, Eric, thanks so much for sharing Jamie and March. Look forward to the conversation. Thanks, Dad. Maybe as a starting point, be just great to hear how did the idea to come into venture capital, extraordinarily competitive area, and really a very rigorous pursuit. It is one where you are in constant motion. How did the thoughts coalesce to form March? Samant Mandel and I had a view, a perspective that eight years ago, we were at the 
early innings of an incredible series of innovations to come around what would drive the way people live, work, and play in terms of the technology underlying that, and particularly in software. And we had a view to build a company that could invest along the way, whether it was in Series A, B, C, D, up to the pre-IPO. And I think that vision was prescient, and it was just important for us to be incredibly disciplined and stick to our philosophy of looking for the best companies in the most promising sectors within IT, and then to build concentrated positions on those, and then double down on the companies that we thought were the real winners. And by doing a fewer number of companies that had a lot of benefit to us in terms of how we spent our time, we could work more closely with the management teams, and then we'd gain their trust and respect, and they would give us more access to the companies, and the success sort of built on itself. And by being focused, it allowed us to build on our industry knowledge and contacts and be more helpful and expand those. And uh, I learned a lot along the way, and we've really just been fortunate to have the opportunity to apply it at March Capital. And it seems that you were early in specializing and identifying areas with a real intent on developing deeper expertise in pattern recognition in fewer areas, because two questions. First, do you agree that venture is really currently innovating and potentially disrupting every industry, every sector? And second, that you need to specialize. And if specialized, how did you come to the areas that you are special and really focused on? And what are some of the drivers and excitement in the areas you're focusing on? Well, we are living in an extraordinary time marked by unprecedented innovation, disruption, liquidity, and wealth creation. And it's a challenging time for an investor or investor in us to determine what to do next, but you have to start looking into the future. And that's what we do in venture and growth investing. We look to the future. I, I feel as if we have a very good call on areas such as application of artificial intelligence, the next generation software for the enterprise, the next generation of cloud infrastructure, cybersecurity, payment systems, and e-commerce enablement. And by focusing on those five areas, we're able to build on that expertise. So so the secret to us is to have the knowledge of those areas, the relationships, the pattern recognition, as you described it, and then have a team working together. Teams win championships. Investment venture capital in the United States topped $150 billion last year. It's well ahead of that this year. It's fair to say the surface area of innovation has increased dramatically, but to put $150 billion in context, that's only about 0.6% of the GDP. So if it's really affecting the entire economy, maybe it's still early innings. I think just have to look at the numbers. So there's tremendous scope for investing in innovative companies as there's a number of structural changes, we try to stay focused and identify the companies just while they're approaching an inflection point that will really accelerate their growth. In 2020, there were about there were over 3,000 later stage investments greater than 25 million. That's kind of where we focus this early growth area. So it's a massive opportunity. So we look at thousands of opportunities a year to do a handful of investments. You know, as Warren Buffett says, diversification is particularly important if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I think we feel like we know what we're doing. So we'll concentrate 15% in any fund in one company and then 
75% of our investments will be in 10 companies in a fund. And we'll monitor companies for a couple of years before we invest so we really know them well. So, so specialization is very important. It's a big area. It's easy to get distracted because there's so many interesting areas. And you just have to think about what's really important. And if you focus on something that's important and inevitable, maybe you get the timing wrong. Maybe you're too early. Maybe you underestimate the competition. But the odds are you're probably going to pay off pretty well. People say, well, venture's risky. And well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think if you look at the loss ratio in the Russell 2000 over the last 20 years, you know, about 70% of the companies went away. And if you bought the top 10 companies in the Dow 20 years ago, you'd be holding you know, 20 cents on the dollar right now. I mean, so you have to be in the innovation economy to get the returns. It is one of the great dynamics of the American economy is the churn. Yeah. You know, when you look at any decade in the S&P 500, the Dow or the NASDAQ, just the, the changes in the elites or the top companies decade by decade and sometimes even shorter periods. Well, everyone likes to think they are. You know, the largest correlation sometimes for a fund's return is usually vintage. And our second fund was invested from 2017 to 2019. We made a series of investments and cybersecurity, e-commerce enablement, IT infrastructure, automation of mission-critical functions. And then we doubled down on those investments. We stress-tested 2019 because we thought we might have a recession. Then COVID hits. We didn't know what to think for the first couple of weeks, but then the company started really accelerating. And all of a sudden, we had five years of innovation adoption in six months. But it's not likely to be repeated in our lifetime. And people look at that and say, oh, my God, you guys are the smartest people in the world. I said, no, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it'd be great to hear about your investment philosophy and approach to building March Capital because, A, there are some extraordinary firms in venture, just extraordinary. There's a very high persistence in venture. Yeah. So often the, the great stay great. And it's very hard to enter the space. Number two, venture is such a unique asset class, arguably the highest dispersion of returns, meaning the difference between the average and the very best is about as big a cone or dispersion yeah. as there is. And so from the allocator side, it's all about picking the best firms and the old guard are relatively easy to identify, but almost impossible to access. And then come all these new firms, whether they're spin outs or new entrants, and it is a little bit like those turtles on the beach scrambling to the ocean shore with the seagulls and crabs in the way and very hard to know which turtle is going to make it to the ocean. And and you really did. And so it'd be really interesting to hear about the philosophy you employed to identify these companies and to partner with these companies after looking at thousands. Well, it's a very competitive area and venture attracts a lot of really incredibly talented competitive, creative individuals. And fortunately, we've been able to recruit them here as well, perhaps tone down the competitive bit. bit. Our investment approach has been to try and identify the best companies early on. And we're very relationship driven. And we invest a lot in our personal and professional networks. And, and we really back a team. And we'll, again, spend a lot of time before we invest with that team. And then if we're able to double down on your best companies on a risk-adjusted basis, you can really knock it out of the park. And then we also have offered a lot of co-investments to our LPs. And I just think it's a privilege to do what we do. We started off 
because we love working with entrepreneurs and being at the intersection of creativity and innovation. And we, we work with great entrepreneurs. We help them grow the business. I, mean, I, I can't think of something more fun for Samant and I to do every day. We give our investors exposure to the innovation economy. They have goals. They might be financial. They might be developmental goals for a sovereign wealth fund. They may be philanthropic goals for an endowment. And we help them reach their goals. And we just work on making sure that we're aligned every day with our investors and with our entrepreneurs. And and it's just, there's like a playbook and a process. And you just keep repeating that. And it's very disciplined. It's pretty simple, Eric. I mean, but it's it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. You get up at five and you, know, you just, you know, you work till you drop, you know, and you're on weekends, you're doing the creative work. And we're building on years and years of, I spent build up Montgomery and Co. And I, people ask me about what I did. Well, we buy 500 companies on strategic alternatives. We financed 200 companies, took 40 or 50 companies public. I founded 10 companies. I must have learned something along yeah. the way, if I can remember it. And That's it's like, and Samad's got 25 years of experience investing. And we bring that to bear and we build a team of 25 people here. And we haven't tried to overexpand. You know, I think we've got to be measured. People have offered us a lot more money. We're like, nah, you know, because our culture is so important to us to work as a team. And some of these other firms that are very, you know, you've talked about, you could, you go in there and there's such envy and you could cut the envy with a butter knife. It's so mm-hmm. tight, you know, and, and we're just like, okay, we're collaborative. When we invest, we invest as a team. Let's be measured. Let's be humble, grateful for what we've been able to accomplish. But we realize it's on the back of the entrepreneurs. They deserve the credit. They're the ones who we talk about. We don't do a lot of press. This is really unusual for us to talk about it. And it's been good. It's, just love what I do every day. I'd love to hear a little more about <laughs> yeah. this amorphous concept of pattern recognition, because in a world where we celebrate youth and as you get older, it's easier to be cast aside. This really seems like a field where on the technology, really valuable to be young and really yeah. understand both the zeitgeist and what people are doing and the technology. But to look at a business and a management team sure seems like someone that's had 10,000 pitches can read the baseball better. When we think about our successes and failures and what we've learned from them, the common factors is the quality of the entrepreneur or team, their ability to articulate a vision, execute on it, attract capital, attract talent, customers. And most of them are 20 years, 30 years younger than me now. And they look for some counsel and insights, and typically we lead rounds. We serve on the board. If we don't serve on the board, it might be a board observer, but then usually they ask us to go on the board at some point if there's ever an issue, and or we double down, we end up on the board. I mean, so I never have a problem with a CEO returning a call, whether I'm on the board or not. I mean, they, they want to talk to us, and so and we talk to them a lot several times a week. And it's interesting what they're looking for, checking with all, all of them on Friday or Saturday, and during the week, there may be something in motion they want to talk about and more reflective over Fridays and Saturdays. And, and we coach them, and it's always about the long game, building, not compromising. It could be talent. It could be who they're doing business with, go-to-market partnerships, and you know, we just try and add value. If you work with a great entrepreneur, it's just a real delight and treasure. I just love it. And we go out of our way to do things to help them be successful personally and professionally. And also their family. I mean, whatever it takes to have someone be successful, we're there 100% for them. 
And that's an example that we said, and other firms are just stunned by the stuff we'll do for an entrepreneur. But their commitment to the company is existential, and you know, we've got to do our bit to help them be healthy and well and successful in, in all aspects of life. At the end of the day, our goal is if someone calls one of the CEOs we work with, say, who's the best investor you work with? They say, March Capital. And that access that that gives you to other opportunities is priceless. Were you surprised that, uh, particularly the quality of companies you backed and invested with, that you're often having to compete to give them your capital? And these very factors you mentioned about partnering and really mentoring yeah. and having that experience being valuable. But it is interesting that I would assume most of the companies, if not all, could have taken capital from a whole range of yeah uh, yeah and they do as well it's not a zero sum game as in, in the venture business usually you know it's four five six investors in a company and it takes mm-hmm. 100 200 million dollars to grow a great company and we're one of those investors but we also want to be top of their list when they talk to the other investors say gosh those, march capital was great to work with we're going to be supportive and look times are great right now so people take a lot for granted but it's not always going to be like this. You know that. We've been through multiple cycles. Yeah. And we just want it to be people that they remember. And we're just building up our balance sheet of goodwill across the industry. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the Montgomery Summit, what it is today, and what an interesting event that brings all these interesting companies, startups to Santa Monica, unique to Southern California, for you to spend time with and get to know better. Yeah. Well, it's this year... Uh, this spring will be our 19th summit, and so we've, and there's been a number of just incredible companies that have performed there. We invite and host 140 companies or so in Santa Monica for a couple of days. They come in and, you know, they present, they'll speak on a panel, they'll do one-on-one meetings, they'll have dinner with us, drinks, you know, fantastic. And we get to know them. Now, maybe 20 of those companies are companies that we've invested in already. So thousands have presented. This is where Facebook first presented. Venture VCs love it. We probably have 400 venture investors come. As I say, this is it takes a community. And so each of them, we host them. They show us their best companies. I mean, it's an incredible marketplace, right? I mean, so like, come out, bring your best companies out, have them present or attend. We bring all the, all the large corporations in who are partners. They go to market partners for them, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds. And we have about 8,000 people or so. And it's an incredible opportunity. A lot of big keynotes you saw last year with Darius from Honeywell and the CEO of ServiceNow, the CEO of Qualcomm, the CEO of Zoom. Every year we got a number of big CEOs, great private companies primarily, interesting speakers, usually from government or military and research or other areas important to society and exploration and discovery or arts and creativity and People have a lot of fun for 48 hours, but it builds relationships leading up to it and afterwards. And a lot of good stuff happens there and in that sort of environment. We get that many people together. About five or six years ago, we put together, or seven years ago now, a, a program for women entrepreneurs. We had some great women come through there. We host that for another half day. We have 400 women, 500 women at that, some of the top women execs in the country. And there we're trying to accelerate and really support the next generation of women entrepreneurs. And so we'll put this conference on, we'll provide them capital if they need it and any support that they need. And that's worked out incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, congrats. That's so important, so fantastic, because 
women entrepreneurs have been underrepresented. Well, completely. I mean, and, and, and well, there's other areas. You walk around today, and we do have a diverse team, and that's very important to us. Yeah, let's talk about how you built the team now with three funds, think, preparing for Fund 4, and now starting to have significant board positions and yeah. assets under management. It, critical to have a, yeah. a great yes, team. Sma and I have attracted about 25 team members here. Uh, we have two partners who are former operating execs, and that resonates well with our entrepreneurs. And we have four younger partners who are in a, say, an early 30s time frame who are in a position to lead investments. Then we're supported by an investment team and a team that does investor relations fundraising or co-investment programs. We have marketing and platform with the summit team and finance and operations. So it's a it's a good sized team. Again, it's important to be diverse. It's a real priority for us. And that sponsorship has to start at the top of the firm. And you just can't over half the team are women. The more diverse team you have, the more diverse set of companies you're gonna be talking to as well. I mean, so it will feed on itself and we just have to be always thinking about that. Anytime we do a, uh, a hire, we want to see at least one of the three finalists be diverse. And we just say, look, we're not going to make this hire until we have some more diverse candidates. And people get mad at me or frustrated. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I know the rules. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, diversity is really important. You know, mm-hmm. It's not just saying that. It's really important. Now, inclusion. We want everyone to be able to you know, to come to work at March Capital and they can be all they can be. Whatever their age, race, gender, politics. And that for me, helping everyone reach their full potential is, is really the secret to inclusion. We have a professional coach that works across the entire organization, works on individual development plans for every member from the admin assistant up and down the organization. Say, what's going to take it for you to to accomplish those goals, to be all you can be. Isn't that kind of all you can ask for? My view on inclusion is like, if someone is, for me, you know, faith is very important, but I don't wear that on my sleeve at the office, but I think it's important for people to think about something bigger than them in life, whether it's nature, whether it's you know religion, or whether it's some faith or some other organization that they is important to them. So we look for balance as well and, and perspective. But my own beliefs then affect how we've been active in the community. And there's a lot of talk about ESG. I mean, we're we're old-fashioned. When we started March Capital, we had a simple policy that all decisions should be made by applying common sense and decency, right? You want everyone to be treated respectfully. You want, you know, what's the, like, the smart thing to do? You know, stop and say, take the long view. What's the right thing to do? Our focus has been, since we started eight years ago, we've always supported at March Capital community initiatives in Santa Monica for homelessness, hunger, and health. We stepped up those programs in 2020 during COVID. We set up a March Capital grant program with the Chamber of Commerce that funded dozens more. But it was that first initiative, looking at an entrepreneur in the eye that you've known for years, maybe decades, and say, all right, Joe, do you want to rebuild your Photoshop? Okay, what do you need? All right, 48 hours had that to them. Cash, equipment, yeah. And they needed that encouragement as well as the capital. And for me, it's like a drop in the bucket, but for them, you're changing lives. And I think that was important. And it was a message to others that, hey, you know, we care about our community. 
everyone step up, shop locally. I don't know how many thousands of dollars of gift certificates I have in my drawer for all these businesses. But I'll, never, I'll never see the light of day. But, you know, we went in there and gave cash grants to get these businesses back up on their feet. And, you know, yeah, okay, great. But we also extended our programs in the inner city of Los Angeles to fund after-school programs and programs to train and transition youth from troubled backgrounds into the workforce. We got more leaning in in the inner city. I think we probably should have done more earlier. But and we continue to support programs to widen the envelope for inclusion and innovation economy at local universities. We've done that at Chapman, USC, UCLA, and particularly out at Claremont College. We have a young woman here, Adele, who serves on the board of the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship that we provided the seed funding for. And now, I say 40% of the women graduates at Claremont McKenna go on the innovation economy. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, it was 5%. Now, obviously, the jobs have changed, but we changed everybody's framework. It's the most popular program on college, and we have the Montgomery Fellows there. Half of them have to be women. I said, look, I'm, I don't care how you do this, but if you want to check every year, half of them have to be women. Now, half of them are women every year. <laughs> now, maybe it should be 60% women, all right, but maybe, maybe. we're holding the woman back. Yeah, maybe. But it was, it was very clear. And then, so in 2020, we formalized at March Capital, the March Capital Foundation, which we were informal before. So we give 1% of our profits to the community, to the foundation for the community. So we give away hundreds of thousands of dollars there. This week, I mean, there's always something on, you know, you met Annabelle last night again, and you know, it's like, mm-hmm. we're trying to bring some women from Afghanistan out through the um, refugee program into having a STEM education in Southern California. And I think that would be great. And we're close. I funded five women to come from Afghanistan who'd gone back there as civil rights activists to come back to California and get back on their feet. But now, now I'm focused on the undergraduates to bring them out of really these refugee camps around Western Europe, the Middle East, and the United States, and get them out and get them in an undergraduate program to study STEM. Yeah. So there's always something yeah, to do. It yeah. never, the, the need never ends. But... Only by the grace of God, you know, we're fortunate to be in this position to be able to do this. And I think it's important, you know, if you're going to be a leader in the community. People always want to say, all right, what's it like being you? And I want to be a big VC. And I tell them what I actually do. They got to go back and have a day job. Yeah. and have to be responsible for feeding the homeless and doing this and that. <laughs> and just managing it. But it, it, yeah. it really is remarkable. And I, I so deeply respect and admire what you've done. And it really is where a lot of this positive social impact ESG is moving, which is from negative screening or overweighting good companies to really doing things that have a demonstrable positive human impact that you can point to. And it's really interesting to see how the young generation, how deep and real this yeah, movement is. Where we, want, we want them volunteering. We want them on the boards. But we also want, to, want them feeding the homeless at Thanksgiving meal coming up very soon. We Veterans Day, we'll do something for the homeless. And you want them engaged in that. The after-school tutoring they do, the debate league they do downtown, where Boys and Girls Club's right next door when that starts up here after COVID, we'll be engaged there. You want everybody involved in it, you know, not just Jamie writing checks, you know, and providing leadership. Everyone, you know, everyone kind of feels like this is what we do here, right? This is important. This is who we are. And it's great. I mean, look, people talk about there's a lot of ESG talk, and there's a lot of consultants, and you have a choice. You hire a consultant to do a bunch of surveys or actually go out and do something in the community. We've chosen to actually go out and do something in the community. There's so much more we learn from doing that, and there's so many deep-rooted societal issues. If we can just change a few lives at a time and make a few differences, and you affect one child, you help their entire family, then you help their younger siblings. So moving from good to 
bad or challenging two topics to cover first on the financial side around valuation and where we are in the cycle and love to hear some of your thoughts on on the positive side you could argue that you are now able to if done well grow companies and market share with substantially fewer people in much faster time than you did 10, 20, and 30 years ago. On the other hand, it's been an extraordinary period of 12 years with even the S&P running at 50% above its mean on a 10-year-plus basis. And being a worrier, as you know me so well, we're fairly late in the cycle and maybe rates start to go up. How do you look at, at valuations? How much and how can you really even apply them when companies are so young where it really is about finding a great business and a great yeah. entrepreneur? First question is whether or not what's happening is real and sustainable. The second half is mm-hmm. what about valuations? And the third is how do you navigate those valuations? So those are, let's talk about those three things. First one, will the new technological and behavioral shifts that from the last year from COVID Will they outlast the pandemic? That's the first assumption you have to make. Were these temporary shifts or permanent shifts? And I would argue that we were on a long wave of innovation and changes in behavioral trend, and the changes are here to stay. They were just accelerated by the pandemic. People have changed the way they engage with the economy, and businesses have changed the way they do business. Companies have migrated from large on-premise software development to working on the cloud. And now this is like a trillion dollar industry that went 20% cloud to 80% cloud in five years. So you have $800 billion worth of stuff moving from one to the other. So you have big losers, right? No one wants to talk about them, mostly public companies, Mm -hmm. but some private ones too. They've been taken private by some of these big firms and, you know, high multiples with a lot of debt. So there'll be some train wrecks there. And these high growth private companies or companies that will go public, you know, Databricks, Snowflakes, CrowdStrike. So as enterprise workloads shifted, because people were forced to work from home, their original applications were cloud enabled. And the home environment has also changed the cyber footprint. You know, it was it used to be a firewall-based business with perimeter defense. Now the, it's a much bigger footprint that has to be protected. And so net-net, all this cloud-native companies are winning big. And it's unprecedented, their growth. CrowdStrike is the fastest-growing cloud software company ever. It's early in its growth, and it's got to continue to exceed everybody's expectations for growth. People always say it's going to go 40%, this year it grows 75%. It's like they're off by a factor two. We do our own report without any company information every quarter on CrowdStrike, and we were more accurate than every investment bank, and we just kind of wonder, why are they so off on this? You know, Don't they get it? Quarter after quarter, 27 banks can't figure it out. So I would just like throw out everything you hear about Wall Street and the crap you're hearing. Mm-hmm. It's unprecedented growth. In enterprises, the end of the day, the companies also had to do more with less resources. People couldn't get to work. So AI-driven technology became much more important for automation. So this is a long-term cycle of trend. People had no choice but to change their behavior. So e-commerce and digitization of money, electronic payments. And we had the le- largest electronics payment company in India. We did one. We did, 
70% of the payments for one-fifth of the world's population. I mean, think of the scale on that. We just yeah. sold it for about $5 billion. Now, I mean, it's enormous. One out of 10 people in the world is an Indian under the age of 25, and they're all using it. I mean, this is like not a couple hundred thousand users. This is like hundreds of millions. And then payments for their supply chains, warehousing, local derivatives, all this had to be reimagined. And we think that's just the start. Now, the next wave of, will probably come from the application of 5G and edge networks, and that's really enhances this whole distributed compute framework, which is underlying the cryptocurrency craze and NFTs. But if you look, take all that crap out, look underneath it, there's a whole new paradigm of computing, which will be a massive opportunity. And I will collapse virtual and real worlds for virtualization. Of, and so we're building one company that we think will be the AWS of the edge. We think we can build a company there that's worth $40, $50 billion in 10 years. CrowdStrike rung the bell at NASDAQ, 10-year anniversaries, we're $60 billion. How do you grow a $60 billion company in 10 years, right? That's extraordinary. We think we can do that over and over again in our portfolio because of these trends. So if, if that's what you're thinking about and you don't see the pace of innovation slowing down, only accelerating, and you've got to look at valuations within that context. So let's take about valuations. Now, 2017, 2019, valuations are about 30 to 50% lower than they are now, probably 50%. But, and we think, and that's measured as a multiple of revenue to revenue growth. So it is a real R square between revenue growth and multiples. And the high end would be like a Snowflake or a CrowdStrike. So you look at that R squared and you say, okay, what was it two and a half years ago? What, what was it now? And we underwrite our investments to valuations that are 30 to 50% lower than the current marketplace. So we basically say, look, if we can't underwrite, we want a margin of error when we do a deal. Now, do we always get that? We hope so. Occasionally we don't. And we might regret it in those. All right, let's be honest. But 90% of the time we do. We, we have this margin of error. We say, all right, we're investing here, and this is what the current market is, and this this is what a two years ago market is. We're below that. So the market drops 30, 50%. We're still money good. And if we keep doing that over and over again, we should have a margin of error. Now, how are we able to do that? Which is the third part of the question. The private market is not 100% efficient. There are always seams in the market. There's, there's, there's secondaries. There's smaller investments. And we're not a huge fund. Our third fund was $450 million. It will grow about 2022 investments. So you, you look at it and say, it's not a perfect market. So there are seams in the market where people will invite us in to invest at the last round valuation. We may buy some and buy some secondary or give us warrant coverage for investing. We're not trying to put billions of dollars. We're not trying to put 10 pounds of sugar in a five pound sack. It doesn't work. We're finding our seams. We're getting in Companies like us would double down at a same valuation a year later. I mean, we're just very disciplined about going in. So if you can maintain that discipline, you have a great view of where it's going, you're coming in with some margin of error, and you're very disciplined how you get in, I think we should be fine. But you really got to have your eye on the ball. That strategy works for us. There's other funds that are much bigger than ours that are putting out an investment a day. They're betting on the market. And they may do just great. They may not. That's not what the business we're in. We're a very disciplined investor, and there's only so much capital we'll deploy in that model. But we think that we'll continue to deliver those 
really good returns as a result. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know what else to say, really. I mean, well, time will tell, right? You know? It is so tough in venture when you are looking at it's like trying to see if you have the next Tiger Woods or, or yeah. Einstein when a kid is at two or three years old. And yeah. and sometimes they really do show that. But sometimes, and what's interesting about the venture model, you're watching these companies grow up. You can, if you're partnering and if you're on the board, you can continue to invest and put yeah. additional capital in this concept around a, a life cycle or yeah. a longer relationship and really help fortifying companies before they go public. I'm curious how you see that and having that opportunity to put additional capital behind, taking longer to really help companies have a higher probability of success. Yeah, they- I think we all learn lessons as we go through life and through funds. And I think we took some strong lessons from fund one, a very successful fund that we needed to be more concentrated, do fewer things better simplify our strategy and and we really come in in years two to five of a company and help them scale up and what have been our lessons learned our biggest mistakes have probably been errors of omission where we had lots of good opportunities that we could have done that we didn't do and i can think of dozens of home run companies that we had the opportunity to invest at that we didn't invest in because we didn't have the team or the resources to do it so we built that up Errors of omission. Do we go after some hard markets like industrial software that didn't work out? Yeah. Do we make some investments in early stage consumer and fund one that didn't work out? Yeah. But those cost you maybe millions of dollars or maybe tens of millions at a minimum, but we left billions of dollars on the table by errors of omission. So you say, all right, what, what are the errors I made? Another error of omission, I believe, is what you're talking about, Eric, which is about not staying in the life cycle. As a partner, I think you want to own these companies forever. I mean, I think they're great companies and you sell them and you pay tax. Could we have a more of a life cycle? Yeah. I think that's a lesson learned that we probably could stay in these companies longer and we probably need a, a vehicle to allow us to do that, that where our investors can opt to in or out. You know? Yeah, and give them the choice. I know you're very close with Charlie Munger and have benefited from his extraordinary wisdom as, as it has to be the top three, five investors and philosophers of the investment community. And and it is always interesting to hear how he likes to own just a few stocks. And this model, the life cycle model, or sticking with winners that you have, is that concentrated own the big winners. And venture by having these multiple rounds and watching companies grow up and having that three to five years before a lot of the larger community starts to look at these companies must give you a big edge and help your clients get into these companies earlier. You have to stay the course. And I think I've been very fortunate to have some terrific mentors or coaches in my lifetime. I think I'd certainly put Mr. Munger at the top of the list. I've learned more in the last seven years from our time together than I knew about investing You know, when I started. He's incredibly clear thinking. But I think first and foremost, he just has high standards for personal and professional conduct and what makes for a great business. And then after you get through those two, the discipline of investing, I think those old stories need to be told and retold. And has been very fortunate to have been on the receiving end of a lot of coaching there. I, uh, I think it's my job is to help coach others here in terms of that discipline and there's some great investors in the world and I just think you've just got to 
operate with, as I said earlier, common sense and decency in everything that you do. And, and then if you're lucky enough to find a good company every couple of years, like a CrowdStrike, and you really figure that out and you got to back up the bus because you're not, those don't come along every month. I don't think there's that many great opportunities. So if you can find one, I think you really have to put your ego aside and concentrate because you're probably not going to find another one like it. Thank you, Jamie. It's always great to to spend time. Thank you. I appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. 